Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome, and today we have a minister, Reverend Lynn Donovan, from St. Andrew's Presbyterian in Picton, Ontario, which nobody knows where Picton is. So, Lynn, let's start with that. All right, Picton is in Prince Edward County, which has become, over the last 15 years, an incredible destination for tourism, wineries, breweries, etc. It is two hours east of Toronto and Prince Edward County is almost like an island that juts into Lake Ontario with 800 kilometers of shoreline and two of Canada's most amazing Lake Ontario beaches. And Picton is a town of about 4,000. The county itself is 25,000. But we have been told that the county probably in the next 10 years will move up to 35,000 people. Okay. So, Lynn, let's start with your academic background. Because I think that's kind of interesting. All right. So my first degree was in political science because I grew up in a clergy household that was very committed to the common good. My father also ran for political office and served as a city councillor. And in my clergy home, the whole point was, how do we make the world a better place for everyone? So initially, uh, fueled by that vision, I studied political science at the University of Saskatoon. Um, But there wasn't a lot that happened in that degree that was really fueling my fire to go out and change the world. So I kind of wandered in the desert for a while and then decided after looking at options like social work um, and serving other other ways of serving the common good, I kind of went back to my roots and thought, you know, Jesus had some really good things to say about reimagining the world. So hey, maybe I'll go and do a theology degree. And everybody who knew me kind of just fell over backwards. So I did my theology at McGill and then subsequently did a master's in Christian education south of the border. Did you say south of the border? Yeah, I did it in Richmond, uh, Richmond, Virginia at the Presbyterian School of uh, Christian Education. Interesting. Okay, so let's talk about your work career starting with what you might have done when you were an undergrad. Oh, what, I, I, what, I slung beer to pay for my education? I went overseas for a year. Uh, I came back while I was studying theology. I did a couple of uh, hospital cha- chaplaincy stints. I connected myself with our uh, inner city mission, Tyndale St. George's uh, in Montreal. I was also connected to the... Uh, inner city mission of the United Church in Point St. Charles, where I worked among the intellectually disabled. Um, My first calling was to Chateauguay, Quebec. I arrived there the summer of the Mohawk crisis. I arrived in January. The the bridge that was the corridor from my community into Montreal was blocked by the end of June. Um, Because I had been raised on reserves, in fact, was named after the chief of the reserve on which I was It was no surprise to me that I might find myself in the middle of this ancient Canadian conversation. Found myself preaching to a very anxious crowd that summer, and the lectionary was uh, the journey to the desert led led by Moses. And uh, that connection was not lost on me. And to be able to engage the congregation in conversations about, wow, now that the tables are turned, how does it feel? 
and maybe we can we can do better now. So I was in Chateaugate for 12 years, um, worked very intentionally with the Presbytery of Montreal as chair of the Future Directions Committee, already in Montreal as the result of the election of the Parti Québécois way back in the 70s. I mean, pres well, basically English-speaking churches in Montreal within the course of about three years ha lost half of their membership. And I remember a colleague of mine telling his his leadership team the day after the Parti Québécois won the election, he brought them in and said, our world will never be the same again in Quebec. It's a whole new ball game. And they endeavored to, to be very creative and courageous about how they moved forward. So I showed up in this post-Parti Québec world. And don't get me wrong, I love Quebec. I love its ethos and even sometimes its politics. But to try and do church in that context was very challenging. So did a lot of reading, pulled in a lot of guest speakers, facilitated a lot of workshops to look at different models of being the church. But I confess that that was all very challenging as well because the English-speaking population as well had already had their life turned upside down. They didn't want their churches turned upside down. I left that ministry after 11 years. Um, it was just I had small children, and it was all just so challenging. So, and, and then I went and founded a community newspaper in the town of Chateaugay because it had 12,000 English-speaking people who did not have an English-speaking newspaper. So I partnered with a high school, got a grant for about $200,000, and began publishing a local community newspaper, partnering with the students in the English department. Uh, I did that for a couple of years. In the meantime, my former husband and I bought an apple farm in southwest Quebec. And kind of thinking about what I wanted to do for the rest of my life when a colleague of mine invited me into an interim ministry situation in Montreal. And I uh, went and joined him and I said, you know what, if we can be really creative and talk about how to make all further connections with this wider community, um, I think we could have a lot of fun here. And what I realized then was that this church that sat on an acre of land had probably not imagined anything new for about three decades yet in the meantime the community around them and NDG was just a vital happening English-speaking community and that for me was the biggest aha moment like well it seems to me that the spirit is working in the community out here and why aren't you guys in your four walls listening um, so I was with that work for two years and kind of fell in love with theology again, fell in love with the possibilities of the gospel again, particularly if it meant being in partnership with the world around us. And I think that's always been my vision as well. Uh, that's what it looked like when I was growing up anyway. You didn't just go to church, and that just wasn't the destination. You went to church as a means of them being sent out to engage with everyone in the world with these values of compassion and justice. So fell in love with theology, and then thought I might have another kick at the can. But when I applied to St. Andrews and Picton, um, and I could see what was happening in the community around it. So this was no longer going to be a sleepy little rural community. There was a mixture of rural and urban and artist and farmer and bohemian. Um, but I saw the possibility for getting very creative. So I had a conversation with the congregation and said, look, um, if you want me to roll back uh, time so that we're back in 1972 and you have a full church. Uh, I'm not the person to do that. But if you want me to help you imagine how to engage the community and how to work in partnerships to try and provide activities, experiences, maybe mission projects that in fact engage and change the world around us, 
Um, I'm, I, there are no guarantees that we'll pull it off, but um, I'd like to give it a I'd like to give it a shot. So there are enough people, I think, in the room who knew that they didn't have any other choice uh, if they wanted to thrive. And so um, they called me, and that was, I guess I arrived here in January of 2007. Yeah. And since then, within the first year, we developed a mission statement whose core words are, we knew that if we were going to pull anything off, we needed to be curious, creative, and courageous. And here I am 15 years later going, those words haven't changed. We are still required to be curious, creative, and courageous. And in fact, the courage, uh, the courage value is actually gone up exponentially. Yeah. But Lynn, you're not a typical Presbyterian church. Um, so if truth be told, um, I grew up in Saskatchewan. I don't actually know what a typical Presbyterian church looks like. I don't think my father was a typical Presbyterian minister. I kind of finally figured out that, um, you know, he was more like John the Baptist, right? He was prophetic. He was kind of on the edge of the tribe. He was well-read. He had a heart for the common good. So um, it seems to me that if, if the roots of my calling are in the ministry of Jesus, I think, I think Jesus kind of continues, Jesus and that ministry and also the ministry of the prophets of Israel, but also... Like I ordained, we ordained uh, elders this weekend. So basically I just said, okay, who are we in the room with? We're in the room with people like Moses, who when God called them said, oh my goodness, I can't do that. Like find someone else, right? But ended up committing his heart and soul to the liberation of his people. And then there was, you know, Ruth, who was invited by her mother-in-law to take the save role, go home to your family so you might eat for another day. And she said, no, I'm going to hang out with you. We can be vulnerable together and trust that God will provide a way. Um, Esther, who had the chutzpah, you know, to take on um, the, the evil Haman in order to save her people. Um, Paul, who was given this kind of commission to share this message of love with the Gentiles. So I have no idea what a traditional Presbyterian minister uh, looks or feels like, but like my people are these people who are in our biblical narratives, who in a world much like the crazy world we are in right now, uh, were called to imagine a different kind of story and a way forward for their people. But they're not all Presbyterians, are they? Oh, the the community I serve. Oh, I don't even know. If they, I don't even know if they'd all call themselves Christians, right? But um, like, does everybody who appreciates the ministry and invitation of Jesus a Christian? I mean, what kind of world were we create? Are we creating? I guess for me, um, what has always been central to me is it's the invitation. It's the vision of like, I love the way Isaiah 25 puts it, you know, someday on this mountain, the Lord God is going to provide a banquet all the, for all the nations of the world. And I think that the mistake of Christendom was to facilitate this them us uh, vision, which was not the vision of Jesus. So I think uh, the more that we can be inclusive, and I don't mean a free-for-all. Like, when I say inclusive, it's like, all right, everybody who thinks we need to live out of the values of compassion and forgiveness and looking after the vulnerable, like, can we all be in the same room together? And then we bring our own gifts to that practice. 
Um, so, for example, when we established the 10,000 Villages store on Main Street, did we ask anyone if they're a Christian when they came to volunteer? No, people want to be part of a world that is more kind to the vulnerable. Uh, we started a year after that Reaching for Rainbows, an after-school program for vulnerable girls, because as much as the Prince Edward County uh, website makes us look like, like the place everybody wanna, wants to live, um, you have this large, vulnerable population that has always struggled. So we established this after-school program for girls. And we had volunteers flock to us because they could see what was happening on their streets. Did we ask them what, what their creed was? No. Um, so we're about vision and core values, not so much about creed. And that's a whole theological, historical con conversation. Like, how on earth did we get here? All you have to do is look at what divided Catholics and Protestants for years. And we're not talking that long ago. And then you need to ask yourself, really, is that really part of this ancient spiritual tradition? It is not. So in many ways, I think it's an exciting time for the vision of Jesus. Um, don't get me wrong. It's crazy awful if you're still trying to make it work as a church. But yeah, and, and certainly the question that gets asked on the street from time to time is, are you guys still a church? Like you took out your pews. That's what we did like probably by my third year because we knew we wanted to make it a very expansive, flexible space. And our other, our hall, so a very tiny space we've given to members of our vulnerable community. And once again, if we are gonna say that we are living our lives in the tradition of Jesus, if we are not finding ways of being neighbors to those who are most vulnerable, um, yeah, I'm not sure we're living up to that vision. So anyway, always challenging. Um, but n but never boring. And I would like to think that we've had some success. We, we put a, lab a beautiful labyrinth on our property. We have a community garden on our property. And as of three years ago, we have the largest Indigenous mural on a church in Canada on our back wall. Uh, work of Christy Belcourt, probably Canada's most well-known artist. It's, it's absolutely spectacular. And before the pandemic, like, drew, you know, hundreds of people every week. So, Lynn, uh, you touched on it briefly, but talk about your involvement with the Indigenous community. All right. So, so we had this big gray back wall. It was just so ugly, and we knew it needed something. And initially, we were thinking about a piece of Celtic art because St. Andrew's is very much rooted in its Celtic spiritual roots, which are non-dualistic and very much like related to the life of the land and the seasons of creation. But then it became clear that as Canadians, like we, we needed to be more courageous than that. And because I grew up with, uh, on reserves and I'm well acquainted with the conversation, I think I was just afraid. Like the his, our, in our history, we got it so wrong. Like, dare we try and get it right, right? So to move forward with humility. So I first approached, uh, first approached Christy to see if we could use a piece of her art. And she knew me and knew the vision of St. Andrews trusted our broad vision and so gave us permission and at the same time i thought okay but we have a mohawk community just on the other side of the bridge literally 25 minutes away so i can't very well say come and look at our funky indigenous mural when we actually haven't been neighbors to the haudenosaunee community just 25 minutes away so at the same time i thought okay I guess I'm just going to start picking up the phone and going and knocking on doors and start developing relationships. And particularly, I thought, you know what, let's go through the door of the artists first. So while the mural was going up on the backyard, 
back wall, I connected with four artists from Tyendinaga, developed friendships, and then said, would you guys please come in and put up an art exhibit in our sanctuary? And every week, each of them served as a guest. We then met in a circle as opposed to rows, and then each of them were guest speakers. Uh, so as we speak now, we actually have the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving address in print standing up on our property as well because that is, I think, probably give it, it gives you an insight into the worldview spirituality of the Haudenosaunee, of which the Mohawk are uh, kind of one of the nations of the Haudenosaunee, formerly known as the Iroquois Confederacy. So when we actually ended up hosting Christy, when she came to see her work, we acknowledged her, et cetera. We had 130 people in the room, and 40 of them were from Tanya so more recently, so we have a relationship with uh, artists over there, but we also have a relationship with the farmers and the seed sanctuary. So one of our friends, Janice Brandt, has gifted us uh, beans that we grow in our community garden that were tradi traditionally grown by the Mohawk of the Bay of Quinte. On July 1st of this year, which you will recall, we were all just reeling because of the number of experiences of bodies being found on uh, residential school property. Um, the town of Picton, or the candidate committee associated with the town of committee uh, with the town of Picton, just said we can't do this. And so I sat here in my office, from which I can see the mural clearly, and went, "Lynn, it's your, it's it's our turn. It's our turn to host the candidate event. Um, this mural and the work that we've done with our neighbors has kind of empowered us to do that. Nevertheless, with humility." So we invited the wider community to an event where we offered five different uh, stations, so to speak. So first of all, I had a number of women who were already knitting little orange sweaters. So we invited people to come and sit in knit orange sweaters. And this was in a partnership with the wool shop downtown. Uh, we sold fry bread um, made by Mary Miracle on Tyendinaga and raised money for the seed sanctuary on Tyendinaga. We ended up raising $550. And then we had a piece of art by Christie that we kind of raffled off and 170 people uh, paid money uh, to uh, because they wanted to support Christie's cultural and language uh, camp. And supporting those initiatives is a direct response to the calls to action by uh, the Peace and Recon the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Committee. So that was, and then we had a station where people learned more about the Indian Act. And I think I'm forgetting something, but we raised $2,500 for Christie's language camp, $550 for the Seed Sanctuary on Tyndanaga. And uh, most moving, the most moving experience was a man who showed up for the day thinking that this was going to be an indigenous experience. And he himself had been raised in Timmins, Ontario. His uh, father had gone to residential school and his father and grandfather are the two most decorated indigenous Canadians. One Watt worked, uh, one fought in World War I, the other in World War II. And his name is Rick Weiss. And I said, no, Rick, this is not a place where you're gonna hear drumming or see dancing, this is a place where people with settler heritage are going to have conversations about our history, get the story straight, and then invest in projects that take baby steps forward in the direction of reconciliation. He showed up on my doorstep three weeks later, and he's a carver. And, uh, oh, sorry, Peter, I'd like to share it with you. He had made a carving for me, and it was a carving that had the warrior image in it, and around the bottom of it, it was only about eight feet, eight 
inches high. His partner, who's an artist, had painted orange sweaters and then added beads to it. And he said to me, you know what, Lynn, I'm here to give you this gift. I created it for you because you and your community have been warriors on behalf of women and children. And I just completely want to continue to support what you do. Well, I could hardly keep it together, but I shared that with both the elders the next day. And I shared it with the congregation that Sunday. And I said, look, we're in tumultuous times and we're in the middle of this sanctuary renovation project that is just scaring the bejeebus out of half of us but listen this is the calling this is our call from spirit right this is a confirmation that all those pieces those places that we have invested our energy our time our resources um this is like wow to have somebody whose father went to residential school come and say you guys stay the course um that was high praise but more than that it was incredible encouragement because the path we have chosen to move forward um, is a challenging one. So, Lynn, what do your children think? Do they think you're a crazy lady or do they support um, what you're doing? Oh, you know what? My children are so supportive. So I have a son who's a musician in the U.S. and he kind of lives on another planet. But the son who's home with me for the summer, he's very much a Donovan. Sometimes I think, oh my goodness, I think Walter, my dad is in the room. And then when he starts preaching to me, I think, oh my goodness, do I sound like that? So he's heading towards architecture. Uh, he's a musician, um, but he's very much of a Renaissance person. So he spends his days uh, when he's working, listening to podcasts and doing extensive reading on just the development of civilization. And what he would say when he looks at Canada is we have not got our relationship with the land or ownership with the land right. Um, so he too comes from a prophetic space um, and he is so supportive of, of what we're about. And, and he even said, you know, mom, I'd like to, I have nothing in my backyard, too many trees. He goes, I'd like to create something in your backyard, mom, that's kind of an extension of the vision of the wisdom of the universe and the labyrinth. So he's totally embraced what we're up to. And the next project, which is our most daunting project of all, is a renovation of the sanctuary. And uh, as an architect, but as a person who is, I think, uh, walks in the world and thinks deeply, he just said, Mom, that space is exactly what it needs to be for the next season of St. Andrews and the Circle of Friends. Yeah. So, Lynn, you talked about renovations. What are you doing to the church? Is it both inside and outside? Um, there's nothing left to do outside. Uh, so basically it's inside. So we have a church. I wish I could give you the dimensions. It's probably like 40 feet wide and 70 feet long. It is the perfect size that you want for a church in this era. Um, like I said, we have an upstairs sanctuary that has a tiny office at the end, but that's it. And then the downstairs hall, which is lovely with a kitchen, lots of light for reaching for rainbows. Um, upstairs, we've already done uh, two renovations. First was when we took out the pews, uh, took out all of the things up at the front, like choir loft and furniture that didn't move, et cetera, et cetera, and opened it up to have a great big stage place. Um, and then a couple about, I don't know, the next renovation was getting the whole place to be um, accessible. So what I recognized about two, three years ago was, whereas St. Andrews is recognized as an innovative, creative um, space within the community, 
um, people come and go for our Earth Day events or our fundraisers who are reaching for rainbows or our fair trade events, you name it. We've held it in that sanctuary. Um, the sanctuary itself just felt tired and old, and, it, and truthfully, it was no longer um, reflecting our vision, that we were living out of a larger vision, uh, maybe a more progressive vision. Um, and the, the, the roof was brown and wooden, and there was no natural light. And so I guess I concluded about two years ago, um, I said to myself, every other space on our property and in our building supports this larger, vaster vision that includes partnerships with the community and other spiritual traditions. And then you go into our sanctuary and you go, oh, yeah, okay, so you don't have pews, but you're still at church. And there are 19 pictures of Jesus, like in this room. So as much as I said, Lynn, are you crazy? Like, do you really have this in you to put this on the table? But there was nowhere to go if we didn't. Uh, the space itself was going to be a barrier. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe I should move, you know? <laughs> and I thought, yeah, where would that be to? Like, where would I fit? In what other church would I really fit? Um, not many, I don't think. So I thought, okay, let's put it on the table. So we have a world-renowned stained glass artist who had retired in Picton, and I said, listen, Sarah, we need somebody to help us reimagine this sanctuary. And so she put us in touch with a woman whose name is Doreen Belavinoff, who taught at OCAD. She herself was a stained glass artist, and she had a PhD in architecture. And she's, uh, yeah, she's just got a number of amazing things in her CV. So she came down, and then she held a workshop with us. She spent a weekend with us. I said, you know, Doreen, you really need to spend some time with us so that you understand that this space that most people call sanctuary is multi-use. So she came down on the Saturday when we had this huge fair trade festival with all kinds of vendors and then drummers and people out on the labyrinth were doing yoga and goodness knows what. And then she was in the sanctuary for worship on Sunday morning. So she, she, she could get a good sense of our identity. And then she came down a few months later to host the workshop and there were 25 of us in the room. And she said, look, I don't care. I don't want to know what your favorite color is. Um, what I want to know from you is what this sacred space means to you. And she sent us all off and it, it was a three hour process, but I think the most important to, or the, 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 the memorable one for me was go to your, go off into a corner, imagine yourself in your favorite sacred space, and then come back and tell us what that's about. So it was no surprise that everybody's favorite sacred space was in fact not in a church. It was on a lake, in the forest, um, looking at a sunset, etc. So that's when everybody got that <gasps> feeling. And so we shared that with her. And so when she came back with this design, it was intended to kind of emulate that feeling you get when you're walking through the woods and suddenly you come across a clearing and the light is streaming through the trees and the shadows on the on the forest floor are dappled and bouncing and changing with the sunlight. So this is uh, so what that transformation will mean for us is pretty significant because she has recommended, and I do support this, by the way, we had eight stained glass windows at eye level. Six of them had Jesus in them. Three of them were beautiful. Three, hmm. And she is recommended that we take those eight, oh, sorry, eight windows out. We have two large windows at either end of the nave that are spectacular. One is the resurrection. The other one is the Good Samaritan, both central stories. 
uh, to who we want to represent. And then she is recommended that we put color blown, blown glass into each of these stained glass and above each of the windows is a two foot by six foot skylight. So for the first time ever, we're gonna get natural light. Uh, it tones down the uniquely Christian story. It totally opens it up. The whole thing will be repainted an off-white. Um, are there, and so basically we're creating a room that makes us feel like we're in the sanctuary of earth and sea and sky, right? So I guess the other piece of the spirituality of St. Andrews is recognizing that, um, like I forget who said it, but it's only the Christians who took it indoors, right? Every other spiritual tradition, they're going outside, they're going on a mountain, they're going by a lake and going, wow, this creation is spectacular. Thank you, God. So, so this is being implemented right now? Is that what's um, The skylights are going in now, and uh, our task for the next four months is to put together the collaboration of partnerships and the business plan to go and get the grant money to do the rest of the work. Yes. So we're on the cusp of some incredible challenges right now. On the other hand, getting to phase one has been challenging in and of, of itself. So in two weeks, when this work is done, we will have natural light in the sanctuary with 12 skylights for the first time ever. And then we are marching on. So that's uh, very exciting. So today it's been Reverend Lynn Donovan. And to learn more of what she's doing, she has some very good video and pictures on the website. So, Lynn, what is your website? The website <laughs> is uh, www.standandrewspicton.com. Great. Well, thank you for your time today. It's, uh, you're doing great work, and you are appreciated by your community. Thank you, Peter. It's been good to be with you. Thanks for the support.